Welcome, this is Angel Donovan with another Dating Sex Relationships DSR podcast. A quick DSR fact today, Dating Sex Relationship fact. This is from a new study by Nicole Prouse and Jeffrey Miller, who of course we've had on the podcast before, scientists. They both come from the evolutionary psychology, psychology realm. And they did this study where they took a 3D printer. If you don't know what a 3D printer is, it basically prints models like 3D things in some type of special plastic. So it makes models to create penis models. They created different size penises and then they let women compare these and let them know which they preferred. So this is better than previous studies, which basically are just asked women um, like, how long do you like a penis to be? Because it's a lot more real and, and they can see the thing in front of them and feel it and touch it. So the results were, wait for it, Women preferred slightly larger than average penis sizes, and it had a few little interesting things here. So one of those is that the average length is six inches. So that's the average, which is about 15.2 centimeters. And the circumference, uh, this is right for erect penises, is five inches circumference. So for short-term partners, there's a difference between short-term and long-term partners. Uh, I was 6.4 inches in length. So just slightly, that's not a big deal. That's very slightly longer and five inches circumference. Uh, the, the circumference is dead center for the average and that's for short-term hookups. And it was slightly different, although this is like so small, I don't think it was really that statistically relevant. So for longer term relationships, marriage and so on, 6.3 inches in length and 4.8 eight inches in circumference, for, so slightly smaller and slightly uh, less large in a circumference, you'd say. This is interesting, I think, is if you look at studies for guys and their preferences, you'll see that guys prefer women with larger boobs for short-term hookups than long-term, and they, and they don't emphasize that so much for longer-term relationships, marriage, girlfriends, and so on. So I'll put a link to the study in the show notes for you there. Thought it was a bit more of an interesting one, so we bring up that DSR fact. If you like more DSR facts, facts like studies on this at the beginning of each podcast, let me know in the comments of this show, and I'll start making more of them for you. A quick shout out and thank you to RayRG, who put up a five-star review for us, said, very helpful. This podcast is very informative and entertaining. It has a variety of subjects and guests, so you always get something a little different in the world of dating and relationships. Definitely worth checking out. If you're looking to brush up on your dating skills, very recommended. Very much appreciate you posting that up for us. If you at home want to help out, post a review also. It's datingskillsreview.com forward slash iTunes, I-T-U-N-E-S, and it'll direct you straight to where to do it. Today's topic, we're looking at DSR, dating, sex, and relationships from a science perspective, and it's evolutionary psychology. Again, today we've touched that in the past. And more specifically, the subject of love and commitment and how it differs between the sexes. And we're going to do it through a number of mechanisms today's guest has looked at. He's looked at some of the cultural extremes around the world. So he's looked around the world to see how men and women interact and relate to each other in relationships, love and commitment differently. So we're looking at China, for example, which is pretty different to the US and some other places. Also looking at how having greater experience with sex, having had more sexual experiences, influences how you look at it and behave. We're looking at some of the most active sexual young adult populations today and what's going on there, how it's changed over time. And whether today's most common relationship type is in fact 
the marriage with extramarital affairs. So that's like secret affairs and basically marriage with cheating. Is that the most popular model today? So if that's true, they are getting married because maybe they feel they have to or they, they actually like the fact of being married or they feel social pressure to. Uh, could be a number of reasons. And, and then they're continuing to be polyamorous. So we'll dig more into that. And today's guest is John Marshall Townsend, PhD. He's a professor of anthropology at Syracuse University. His research is into human sexuality, sexual attraction, marriage, divorce, and culture. And he teaches courses on sexual attraction in cross-cultural perspectives and cultural and sexual behavior. He has published numerous studies and books, and his latest book is simply entitled What Women Want, What Men Want. Currently, his research is focused on highly sexual, active young adults, which we'll get into in this call. As usual, if you want the show notes from this interview in a done-for-you format with all the links, the links to the guest and everything we mentioned on the show, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick out the episode there. You can also get it in your email inbox. Then you go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there. And that's that. Now let's get into today's interview. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. John, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm glad to be here. Look forward to it. All right, let's dive straight into what you're doing. What triggered your interest in your topic? What is it just for the audience? Well, a few years ago, I got a National Endowment for the Humanities grant to study divorce and child custody arrangements. And and I did a comparison out in California, which is where I'm from originally, of, of Anglos and, and uh, Latinos. And we wanted to see Latino culture, you know, they had more extended family, more supports, da-da-da. So I did a lot of the interviewing myself. And I did collect data on the target topics. But the more I talked to men and women, the more I, I became aware of, of what Kinsey called the basic sex differences. And when women cheated, it's like their reasons were usually not the same as those of men who cheat, et cetera. And I, I became more and more aware of these, these what now are called gender differences in sexuality and so in sexual psychology. So, so then I went back and reread the seminal work uh, by my, my friend there at Santa Barbara, Don Simons, The Evolution of, of Human Sexuality. And I had not studied that when I was a graduate student. I worked in an area of mental disorders and so forth. And reading Don's book, it just fell into place. You know, in other words, I had studied other things and had really taken more of a social construction approach, looking at mental disorders and was well-versed with all that perspective and approach. And the evolutionary view just seemed to make sense of a lot of data, a lot of different kinds of, of phenomena that had been studied. And uh, these people that try to pick holes and and say, oh, but, you know, women can do this and that, I go, no one that I know, no evolutionary psychologist 
denies the importance of, of psychological and social factors in, in modulating behavior. I mean, we all know that, right? Cultures are different. I'm, I'm a psychological anthropologist, so I know cross-cultural variation, right, in, well, mental disorders and, and sexual behavior. So nobody denies that. The point is there are persistent and sometimes pesky differences between men and women. And they keep showing up. Books like uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Well, there's a reason why these things take off and become really popular. Or Deborah Tannen's work, you know, in sociolinguistics. Women are, of course, the major audience for books like this. And it's like, it helps them understand, oh, it's not just my boyfriend or my husband who's who's a dork. It's like, this is a male tendency. And I if I'm going to be heterosexual, I need to learn to deal with it. That doesn't mean that I let him get away with everything, but at least I know it's not individual, right? So I get a lot of responses like that in my classes where I deal with these topics that women will either even say like, uh, hey, is it okay if I bring my boyfriend, right? Or my husband or whatever, because it helps them put it in and they keep hearing, oh, we're all equal. We're, we're all equal. And I say, well, politically, yes, that's what we strive for. But are you identical psychologically? And it's like, no. Are you identical anatomically? Well, obviously not. Well, for the same reason, your sexual psychology is just as different as your external genitalia. So, you know, Simon's pointed out, like in his original work, you get give in mating women all the risks and the responsibility and nine months gestation and nursing and all of that. And men only have to inseminate and walk. I mean, they could invest, but their biology doesn't require them to. So you create those vast differences. Then you give both sexes the same sexual psychology, (laughs) one with all the risks and responsibilities and the other with potentially none, but yet they'd have the same arousal system. Evolution would never work that way. Neither would God unless you were a Satanist, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's astonishing that people just can't think of it that way. It's like, well, of course, right? They would have to have a different sexual psychology. In terms of your view, where are you coming from and where do you see the politically correct view today, uh, the way to look at this? <laughs> well, in the social sciences and in hardcore programs, such as like the program at where you have evolutionary psychologists like David Busted program in Texas or, or scientific and clinical programs like Mike Bailey's there at, at Northwestern. But outside of that, I mean, the, the social, social sciences have been taken over by the postmodern perspective and the humanities as well, in the United States at least. And so the really politically correct is, oh, men and women would be exactly the same if it weren't for all these outmoded archaic and patriarchal capitalistic restraining sex roles. And it's all tied up with their their neo-Marxist feminist view of it's all created by patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. And I just go, I, I don't think that these differences that I'm discussing are created by patriarchy any more than the differences in the genitalia. And as far as we know, that influence uh, has not been proven. Great. And so to give a bit of context, um, I understand that you've been studying casual sex primarily in one of the top partying schools in the U.S.? Well, yeah. I mean, of course, the administration is not proud of this, but (laughs) Syracuse University, (laughs) but I'm not an administrator. So, and besides, I didn't elect my school to be the number one party school in a recent poll, but it got chosen. I don't know who ranks that as Playboy or whoever does it. But anyway, 
it's a perfect place for me to study casual sex because party schools are where it's happening. There's less of this going on at MIT, for instance, right? The athletic programs and the, and the fraternity systems and so forth, that's where the hookup culture exists. Like hookups are like sexual encounters that have no strings attached or, you know, that's the goal anyway. So I have been studying this for a while and actually 20 years now. And I find, of course, women... There's no question about it. A lot of these young women, like one who was quoted on the internet, she said, oh, I'm kind of the Asian Suki, the character from True Blood, uh, the vampire saga. I'm, I'm the Asian Suki. My sophomore year, I, I hooked up with 25 guys. She says, but of course, you know, after I graduate and want to get married, I'm going to turn into the total bridezilla. And I just think that these women are not going to continue to act like that. And most of them know it. I mean, they just say, of course not. Of course not. They're, they're going to want to marry and they're going to want to marry well. That's another thing that I've studied for years. And that is this idea, the old idea of like when women are empowered, they won't care about men's status and earning power and so forth. And it's just the opposite. The higher a woman goes, then the more she, she wants at least an equal or, or, or higher. I mean, she wants somebody she can be proud of, someone she can respect. And those are the terms that they use. So the men are, they don't want an idiot, but they, they don't care if she's a high school teacher or a doctor. They really don't. I mean, I have empirical data on that as well as interviews. So that means that these women, if they're not very attractive physically, they're going to have to marry down. And some of them, you know, and I, I published some of this stuff in, in uh, journals and, and it's also in my book, my Oxford book. Anyway, some of the women were the medical students and law students were very aware that their pool of acceptable mates was shrinking as their status increased. And the guys who were moving up, gaining status, becoming doctors and so forth, they were very aware that their pool was expanding. I mean, someone just said, you have to believe that at the end of all this grind and the years of work and taking all these horrible tests, that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow a pot of sex, right, of, of women, willing women. And so the guys were, they knew, they said, hey, in high school, I was this skinny shit with glasses, you know, the dork. And then in college, it, was, it wasn't much better. He said, but medical school has been a bonanza, right? It's like all these nurses. Yeah, yeah, and that's the stereotype today, really. Which is, you know, what do you mean? Well, so the guys who weren't getting getting laid a lot at school, tend to be like tends to flip around a bit later on in life when they're doing, getting more successful so it's a bit of a stereotype these days in places like silicon valley and areas like that revenge of the nerds right it's like right right exactly actually actually some a jewish mother told one of my students she says she says what are you doing studying in bird library you know the regular library like go to the law library or the med library start looking for a nice jewish doctor or lawyer to marry, right? And she says, oh, those guys are so nerdy, blah, blah, blah. And the, and the mother says, so what if he's short and fat and has white socks? He'll look a lot better with a stethoscope around his neck. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned guys tend to do better when they get higher status. But the women, what is that dynamic? Why is that occurring? So, Well, that's a myth. And, and I talk about that in my book. When they say, oh, men are threatened. They're threatened. They won't date me because I'm, I'm so smart. And I'm, I don't want to be the messenger with the bad tidings, right? But I'm looking at this woman who's talking like that. And I'm going, maybe they don't date you because you have a 45-inch waist. It's like the best-looking women in that class of, of medical students had plenty of dates. And they knew that. They said, we don't put down our colleagues and some of these girls are my best friends, but 
they just said they're not in shape and da da da. And and of course they don't want to date down, right? So a lot of these women just don't want to admit it. So so that's a rationalization. Like, well, why aren't these guys dating you? It's like, oh well, they're threatened. And I go, oh yeah, they're just quaking in their boots. You know, it's like what they care if you have an MD or a PhD or whatever. They don't care if you're good looking. I do have some interviews with really great looking women who have high professional status and they just say, Oh, it's, it's a major advantage because these guys don't, they expect you to be kind of dumb. Then they find out you're smart. It just opens all kinds of doors. And anyway. So in terms of sexual behavior and motivation, it's actually a lot in the interest of women as well to gain status. So to pursue a career, to climb up the ladder and everything, it's in their interest as well. It doesn't make them more attractive to men, sexually attractive. It does not. In fact, I've had like nine different experiments showing that. Like you dress a guy in a really designer outfit, right? Like Rolex watch, the whole business, right? And you describe him as a doctor. And then you have different models like handsome guy, medium guy, homely guy, right? But the costume and the description could just transform his attractiveness for women, right? But the woman, a really good-looking woman, is a good-looking woman. Now, she's better looking in a nice outfit than a waitress outfit. But if she's good-looking, has a great body, <laughs> the guys will take her out. I mean, even if she's a waitress. They might not marry her, but it's just overwhelming. Looks are overwhelming. And, and the idea of, like, oh, men are threatened by the woman's status is like, I didn't find that at all. They just say they're indifferent. Like some of them had... They were going out with waitresses, but they were going out with school teachers, nurses, whatever. And the female medical students just hated that and said, oh, they're dating down. How can they do that? And I'm going, that's because you, you have to compete with these women and, and you can't. Now, everybody wants everything for them. I mean, I want what I want when I want it, right? <laughs> and these women, they want high status guys. And high status guys can get pretty women. And if the woman also ha happens to have good income and professional status and everything. Most guys, let's put it this way. This woman would not be interested in a guy that was threatened, that was so insecure that he was threatened because she had a degree or something like that. I mean, what these guys are like, these, these little nerds. Oh my God, she has a PhD. It's like, it's ridiculous. Guys like good looking women. And if the woman also has some professional smarts and everything, then all the better. That's what I found. Women are attracted to confident men and confident men aren't threatened. Yeah, so what is the basis be behind the research? What kind of methods are you are using? Are, are they surveys? You said there's empirical, you know, so how are you trying to get at the truth? Because we had other scientists on and, you know, we know that people try and come at the truth from different angles. How have you been like trying to get at the truth? Well, I mean, the most telling is like the studies that show that gorgeous women tend to marry up. Like Sharon Stone is supposed to have a 160 IQ or something like that, right? Are men so threatened by that that they wouldn't take her out? It's like, forget it, right? I mean, because she, she's fabulous looking. How have I come out? I've done experiments with different kinds of manipulating status, manipulating looks. So it's theoretical. It's like, would you go out with this person? Would you, would you have a cup of coffee? Would you date this person? Would you have sex with this person? Would you marry this person? And then you have different combinations of, physical attractiveness and different statuses and so forth and, and costumes. Okay. And all kinds of different statuses and costumes and so forth. And women, you can say, rate this person on physical attractiveness. And one group is seeing the guy like in a Burger King outfit. Right. And the other subjects are, are seeing him, you know, in a designer 
blazer, et cetera, right? Cost, even when you say physical attractiveness, women are hugely influenced by how he's dressed or his described status. Whereas men, if they're influenced at all, it's significantly less. But often it has no, no influence. You say how sexually attractive she is, right? Or physically attractive. The guys are rating her mostly on looks. They, they just, it just doesn't matter to them. Whether, oh, Michael Dunn there at the University of Cardiff, he, he kind of springboarding off of my work has done this with cars. He has like a Bentley Silver Cloud or whatever the hell it is versus a Ford Focus or something. <laughs> and you put the same guy, you know, half the female subjects see this guy in, in a Ford Focus and half the other half see him in this Bentley. And, oh, would you go out with this guy, et cetera, blah, blah. But it's this is all the paradigm is from my work. Anyway. Guess what? It has this huge influence on whether the women would even give this guy a time of day. The guy in the Ford, it's like, forget it. He better get a copy of Playboy. But when women see that, and it's not like, oh, he has a hot car, so I would go out. It's unconscious or usually unconscious. Women are assessing cues to a male's success and confidence. And, and also, like, does he seem kind and nurturant and all that? Powerful, but would be kind toward her and her children, right? That's the ultimate combination. And and some women just articulate that. I want him to be able to walk over anybody if necessary, but be nurturing and kind toward me and my offspring. And some, some of these women medical students said that, that kind of thing. They knew exactly what they wanted. So all of these experiments, including the classic one with uh, Sadala, Kenrick, and Vershur's, uh Dominance experiments, they had all dominance expressed in all these different ways, including actors, the same actor acting really insecure and diffident or acting confident, not arrogant, but confident and, and secure. And women's assessment of his attractiveness and dateability were hugely affected by whether he's acting diffident or confident. And the actress was doing the same thing for the men. And men, we weren't asking them, oh, would you like to have coffee with her? Do you find this woman attractive? Do you want to go to bed with her? Do you? And whether she was acting confident or insecure had no influence on whether they would take her out or not. So to answer your question, this has been looked at by like who marries whom? In other words, real partner selection, marital partner selection. It's been done experimentally. I've used... Uh, in-depth interviews with medical students and then experiments with photos and all these status descriptions with law students and, of course, thousands of, of, of subjects of, who were undergraduates. And I've interviewed a lot of people in the community with the lawyers, doctors, whatever. And I draw on everybody else's work, thousands of subjects like in the American Couples Study. So you find it everywhere. People ask, well, don't looks count? Don't women like good-looking men? And I say, of course, that's just gravy. But this guy who's a construction worker, who if you dress him up and he talks right and say that he graduated from Oxford or Harvard or whatever, then they'd all be hot for it. If you say, oh, he's a construction worker and he, and he talks like a construction worker, like a high school dropout, college educated women won't get near this guy. It's like, unless he somehow, he has other status, like he's, he's in a rock band or something like that. Then, ah then that trumps his old status, right? His, his uh, birth status. But that, that this idea that, that women, oh, he has such a cute ass. It's like, yeah, it's a cute ass because it's on Brad Pitt, 
<laughs> you know, it's like the construction worker, actually a gay man might say, oh, this guy's ass is better, but he's, but he's a construction worker. So the woman, oh, well, no, his ass doesn't do anything for him, which brings me to Chiver's work. Namely, I mean, it goes back to the original Kinsey studies that show that men have a capacity for visual arousal at a distance. They can just look at, at pictures, even like of, of discrete bodily parts like genitals, for instance, and become aroused. And of course, that's the basis of pornography. And women need to see a story. They have to imagine themselves in it. I mean, you show pictures of genitals and it it does nothing. And so way back, like 53 is when the Kinsey comparison of males and females came out. And since then, every study has shown that. Like women can get into a porn thing if they, they can imagine this story and this and that. And, they, and especially if they're with their boyfriend or husband or whatever, and they turn it into this. But just looking at pictures of intromission, right, penetration and all that, it doesn't do anything for them. Or just looking at naked people doesn't do anything for them. And this has been updated as you, by Meredith's work there, came out of Northwestern, that whole program with Mike Bailey and those guys. So why is this important? Because as Kinsey, their research intimated, this difference between men and women, that males are visually aroused. Oh, and also that women are more likely to associate sexual activities with some kind of emotional bond or affection or whatever. They don't always have to do it, but their tendency is that's the ideal, right? And and they're drawn to that. So hence romance versus hardcore porn. Is that something like looking at Shiver's work and just for background, could you give like a rough overview of the, the Shiver's work and, and what the outputs of that have been for the audience? Well, there, there's all of that stuff about, about sexual orientation, which I don't really want to get into. I mean, in a way, it's a different issue, but it is, a, namely that... Mike Bailey's point always has been women don't have a sexual orientation the same way men do. I mean, they have a sexual identity, they have a sexual preference, da da da, but they don't have a sexual orientation because as he defines sexual orientation, it's, it is this capacity to just see something with the genitals, tight skirt, whatever, and find that sexually exciting and want to do something about it without knowing the person. It's like all that can be irrelevant and that's the whole basis of men looking at porn and, and using it to stimulate masturbation. And that difference, then Kinsey, they concluded, well, that then explains why men are so apt to see a woman, want to have sex with her before they even talk to her, whatever. It's like kind of, that's just something you have to do so that you can have sex because you like what you see, because what you see has stimulated lust. And then once you have sex with her, Sometimes you want to see her again, and sometimes you don't. You penetrated, you ejaculated, and you may, it's in one night stand. And that's all you wanted. And, and anything else is like, maybe you talked to her and that was cool. Maybe you didn't even want to talk to her. And, and the Kinsey people, they weren't judging this. He was an entomologist, right? An expert on insects. And he was just dispassionate, just saying, this is the way it is. These are the differences. So they said, no matter how sexually free a woman has been, we haven't found any women where we can just show them pictures of genitals, male or female, I mean, and, and they turn on. They don't seem to exist. Despite how sexually free, we, you're talking about Syracuse University, and over time we're saying that women have become a lot more sexually free, despite that, the concept was that still. They, it's the exceptions that prove the rule. 
in this case. And that's why I've been looking at, that's why it's perfect. It's like, because it is historically unique and everything. These, these kids are freer than they ever will be again. Right. They're not looking for marriage. They know they're not going to marry anybody they meet in college. And that's very true. Very different from say 30 or 40 years ago. So I actually did this experiment. I can send you this uh, a PDF of it too, if you're interested. We got pictures of gorgeous models, male models for the women, female models for, for the men. And, and we had them pre-rated. Yeah, they're all gorgeous. Well, because they're professional models. Anyway, so, and they were in bathing suits. I wanted to know, there's this uh, instrument called the sociosexual orientation inventory, which has been used by a lot of people. And I wanted to, and it, it rates, it, it measures like how, sexually free and proactive someone is and, and versus wanting commitment. And so I wanted to see, all right, males are able to assess coital acceptability. Like if they want to have sex with, with someone virtually immediately, just on the basis of what they see, the, the physical appearance. So I want to see as guys do this, right. Do they become more able to do that and just say, I don't need any more information. Just looking at this picture of this gorgeous chick in a bikini, I want to, I want to do her. All right. Does that increase? Does it stay the same? Whatever. And now we want to see these women, like some of them are very, what used to be called promiscuous, right? They've had a lot of hookups and all that. Are they more able to say, I don't need any more information. I would do this guy just looking at it makes me horny. All right. So does their sexual experience in any way correlate with their ability to, to make that, that kind of judgment? And what I found is, of course, men were much more able to say that, but like the means were significantly different, of course. But more importantly, the more hookups and casual sex men had, the more they, they said, I don't need any more information. I do. Or in fact, I did three women last night because I'm, I'm the quarterback or whatever. Right. So they, they were used to doing it and they, and they were more likely to, Say so strongly agree. Yeah, I would. I, I absolutely because I do it all the time. And the women, the mean was a lot lower than the men. Of course, that's expected, but there was no correlation. Doesn't matter a million hookups, whatever. They were no more likely to say, "Yeah, I don't need any more information." I would do this guy. Just looking at him makes me want to have sex with him. They were no more likely to say that. Say that's the heart of the matter. So the way you look at that, is it that the more sex guys have, the more partners they have, the more free they get with this? So that they become less inhibited and they're just like, yeah, she looks good enough. They're used to it. It's like these athletes who get charged with date rape. And it's like a lot of them are drunk when this happens. I'm not excusing any of this, mind you. It's like I'm just saying that I know somebody was like, you know, sports photographer and everything. And she said, like Mike Tyson, she said, this kind of thing happens all the time. Groupies go up to these guys' rooms. And they have done this so many times, hundreds, literally hundreds of women, right? And everybody's pretty blitzed on booze and possibly other chemicals. And so then at some point, the woman decides, you know, she is flirting. She's up in this guy's hotel room. So she knows that she's not there to play chess. On the other hand, at some point she decides, no, he's just tearing my clothes off and everything. I want more control on this. Maybe she would have had sex, but he's just... He's not being romantic. He's just tearing her clothes off. And she says no. And he just goes ahead and does it. Why? Because he's just so used to groupies. And, and some of them do say, oh, no, no. Oh, you big bees, stop. Some of them do say that, those kinds of things. I, and mind you, I'm not excusing it. It's like if she says no, it's rape. But well, what I'm saying is the more men do it, it's not like they women think like he got it out of his system. 
he got it out like Tiger Woods. He got it up. No, he got punished. <laughs> he got punished, and he's more discreet now. I'm sure. As as uh, like and Clinton, he doesn't have office, so he could do anything, right? I mean, I'm just saying, men don't get sick of it, right? That's a female projection of their own psychology. They get tired of being punished by women for promiscuity. Yeah, I've wondered uh, just through the friends I've known and, and the people I've met over time, if that the more sex guys have, the more casual sex they have, the more sex partners they have, if it changes the way they look at love and commitment. I know you've looked at that topic a little bit. And you know, the way I feel is I, I feel that it makes it harder for guys to settle down if they've had a lot of partners. So they've got over 100 partners or, or whatever. I feel like it, it makes it harder for them just from seeing what's around me and what I've seen over time, that it makes it harder for them to settle down into some kind of monogamous relationship over a longer time. I would agree with that. And this is what I'm, I'm saying about, like with this, this photo study I just described, that, and so I have that empirically, that the more casual sexual experience men had, the more likely they were to just look at a, a, a stimulating picture and just say, ah, what, what information do I need? Absolutely, I have sex with her. Why? Because they have done it. These athletes, I mean, this one guy, that the, the captain of the rugby team, he was tending bar in the jock bar, and, and so that helped too. But he was big and husky, and he knew how to act dominant. And, and this was his freshman year, but of course he lied and never told the women that he was a freshman. And he screwed 30 women in one summer before school started in the fall, right? Using his, his athletic status and, and also uh, his, his uh, position as bartender in this popular bar. And people, you know, often say, oh, but these guys are just bragging about it. And I go, a lot of them don't want to tell you because they, there's a probrium attached. There's a lot of prejudice, particularly from like the women's studies people and all that. So some of these guys are afraid to talk about it. But, but I know this guy and absolutely he was credible because I said, well, yeah, rugby, of course, is not a big spectator sport like basketball and football. And he says, yeah, those guys are on TV and everything. And I said, so do you have the same quality women or do you think that there's a difference? And, and he said, oh, good. obviously there's a difference. It's like we get their scraps and we get their leftovers. And he said, but but I, I think like Larry Flint, if you can't screw a 10, screw five twos. <laughs> And I remaining neutral and, and taking all this in and, and ultimately going to report it somewhere. And, and I'm thinking in all my interviews, no matter how many hookups a woman has had and this and that, I mean, I've never heard a woman say anything remotely resembling that. Why would any woman want to screw five twos? <laughs> right, right. So I wanted to just talk about where that could be coming from. Uh, to give you a bit of perspective on where I'm coming from is in the academy where we're coaching guys who sometimes don't have any sexual experience, uh, these are things they want to get better at in life. We'll often look at their biology and start working on their testosterone levels, get it tested, start working on the biology aspect, right? And then we also look at the basically learning and getting rid of inhibitions, right? More of a psychology angle. Over time, like I appreciate both. I think you really need both. So I'm just wondering if you have a perspective on you're saying as guys have more experience, like they've slept with more women and they tend to sleep with more. Is that like biological because they have this higher need because they have higher testosterone? Or do you think it's also through like getting rid of inhibitions or is it a, a function of both? Well, I, yeah, I haven't done um, 
hormone research myself, but actually one of my colleagues and friends here, uh, Al Mazur, uh, has done testosterone research, and he found like athletes after they won a game, their testosterone levels go up. And of course, you can't separate biology from psychology, right? I'd like how you're feeling depends upon your hormones and all that. So, I mean, it's all interacting. So success feeds the testosterone and, and your psychological feeling of success and confidence and everything, which feeds back into the testosterone and lack of inhibition, et cetera, right? So these guys, I mean, and they're in a winning season. The athletes on these campuses with, that have Division One teams, Angel, I can tell you, I don't even know if movie stars have it this good. I mean, the, the athletes and the, and the leaders in the top fraternities, because movie stars, rock stars, whatever, have to worry about entrapment. They have such fabulous incomes. They don't know that this girl can be underage. I mean, these guys don't have a lot of those, those uh, risks, right? These are middle-class girls. They're not going to save their semen, you know, like Monica. <laughs> like They can hook up with more than one woman every night if they want to. And I, I've interviewed them and gotten to know some of them. And I said, you realize that all this is going to change as soon as you graduate, right? And they said, yeah, yeah, we know, blah, 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 and everything. But I think to myself, I'm thinking, actually, you don't know. You think you know, but you're going to be a nobody. You're, right now, you're like a movie star, and you're going to be a nobody. I mean, you go to law school, you're a first year. Then you're a freshman, right? You, you're going to be nobody for quite a few years. And then... You're not going to be in this atmosphere with these all these little acting out teenagers. You're going to be with women who like don't mess with them. They'll sue you for harassment, whatever. I mean, the game changes totally, right? And the stakes. So, I mean, it is like a man's dream. In your questions, you know, your list of topics, everything you said, oh, well, it's cross-culturally, where's the freest place? To be? I'd say American secular campuses, especially ones with strong athletic programs and fraternity systems and everything. That's like, that's male nirvana. It really is. So I know you've looked at other countries and how they compare in terms of sexual behavior extremes. One in particular, I thought it was, where would you say first, are there different extremes in the world? Like if we were going to look at the most conservative or the, or the most far in one way versus the other way, you said in the States, a college campus is probably one extreme. Where would be the other extreme? Well, in religious communities, right? I mean, that's where all the women are chaperoned. I mean, it could be Hasidic or it could be Amish or even like Mennonites or whatever, where the women, and this is the way it was throughout history too, was like women were, were seldom alone. So, and they were going to be married off at puberty, you know? So this idea of like just all these hookups and all, and of course, until very recently, contra, uh, convenient contraceptives were not uh, available. So Dave Schmidt in 2005, published in Behavioral and Brain Sciences, published uh, a 48-nation study. And so you can see, like, the most conservative places and the most, and obviously, strongly religious, like, Islamic countries or whatever, but anywhere, like rural Greece or, or Italy or whatever, it's like, in some ways, it's like going back in a time machine. And the women are just not, they are not flaunting themselves and whatever. They're, they're marrying when they're still teenagers. That would be some of the most conservative places. Yeah. I think China is an interesting place because it's changed a lot in the last 30 years. And you can start to see the, the kind of mechanisms, uh, like I myself have lived there for a while. So I've kind of experienced a change over an eight year period. And which was for me, it was quite uh, um, shocking, really, especially like going to different areas in West China and comparing that to say like Shanghai, Beijing. 
Is there anything that you saw from that evolution over the last few decades, which was interesting about like how China's evolved and any clues it would give as to where where our behaviors come from and what the limitations, what limits us? Oh, I think that China, and, and, and that's why I have a little section in, in my book, in the last chapter, I, I look at, at Mead's picture, Margaret Mead's picture of, of Samoa and China, which are so different, right? But China shows, you're right. Oh, and, and I've never been to China myself and I don't uh, speak or, or read Chinese, but one of my best friends does and has worked there for years and his name is William Jankowiak. And he's at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Anyway, and so he contributed data for my section on China in my book. And then I also had a Chinese graduate student here who did library research and, you know, to update everything. In the 80s, the old Maoist system was still in place and divorce was almost impossible to get. You'd have to go through brainwashing, like, why are you into the cult of personality and like make do with your marriage and otherwise you'll be sorry. So there was very little sex outside of marriage. It was quite puritanical. I mean, of course, see, this is the thing. These tendencies will out. Some environments are more conducive to their expression and some are more restrictive, but they're always there. For instance, high status men are usually polygamous. Even in the most constrained situations, They'll have a mistress. Well, like FDR and Thomas Jefferson was having sex with all the slaves and everything. So they'll do it even if there's a program. They'll, they'll just try to do it discreetly. So in the 80s, the, the Cotters, you know, the, the, the party officials, they tended to have mistresses, but they weren't just hooking up. And they had a mistress, like FDR had a mistress. And, and most men in the 19th century who were successful had mistresses. Anyway, but the 90s, they opened up the economy. And so you begin to get all these rich businessmen who traveled, right, and who had hard currency, had American dollars and British pounds and Swiss francs, et cetera. And those guys, of course, immediately became polygynous, see? So here you can suppress it, and it was only party officials who, had, who could have a woman or two on the side. But now you have rich businessmen, and guess what? They, and their divorce rates are, of course, <laughs> the highest. Of any, of any group because they're they're screwing around. They're taking advantage of it, right? They have all these girlfriends. So I'm just saying like, you can constrain a lot, but you know, look at the Old Testament. It's like the punishment for adultery could be death, right? And yet there are two of the 10 commandments are about it. And that means it was a problem. So in other words, you could die for this and some people still did it. So what does this tell us? It's like, these are powerful impulses, right? And society sets up rules and tries to control. Like, oh, these things wouldn't exist if we didn't have, if it weren't a social construction. I say, well, then how can you explain pedophilia, right? I know, I mean, it's, oh, yes, somehow he was receiving messages that he should like little girls or, you know, they were three years old or something. I mean, th those things are just totally nuts, you know. Everything's a social construction. And looking at the paraphilias, that's one of the best examples. How hard it is for a lot of gay men to come out, even today, and with their parents and everything. And and all the gay people I've talked to, they said, oh, well, if it were a choice, I probably wouldn't have done it <laughs> because it, it wasn't easy. But, of course, it's not a choice. So, And that's one of the things that, that Bailey and, and his crowd there in Northwestern have been working on for years, right?
So one of the interesting concepts you came up with in your book, I, I found interesting, was uh, emotional alarms. And you were talking about how uh, this, well, maybe you should explain the concept yourself. You know, but I find it very interesting how it didn't differ between the women who had a lot of casual sex versus those who, who kind of avoided casual sex. Let's put it this way. Well, no, I mean, there are certain like, kinds um, of, of disturbing thoughts and feelings that women can have if they're engaging in uncommitted sex, right? And so that's what I've been tracking now for like 20 years, figuring out questions, because obviously they're doing this. Some of these women are racking up really high scores, right? How many guys they've hooked up with and everything. But what tends to happen, and many of them say this, is like, oh, well, most of my hookups would have never happened if I had not been totally hammered, you know, totally intoxicated and a lot of them are blacking out and some of them end up in the ER, the, you know, the emergency room. So a lot of them are anesthetizing these feelings, but when they haven't totally blacked out, some of them even say like, actually, I hope that this guy doesn't do kind things like walk me home or loan me a sweatshirt or something like that, or actually act like he remembers my name because I'll get my hopes up. So they're having to guard themselves. And even so, you know, they, and see, this is the thing you need, you need people that can do intimate interviews or, or you're never going to hear this. It, I, I've been working on surveys, how to construct them for years. And, and some of the stuff you just can't capture in a survey, you know, with forced choice questions like that. This one woman said, oh, well, yeah, like I thought it was really cool. And I thought he, he liked me because he loaned me his sweatpants. And I said, and so all these sorority girls are sitting around this table with me. And, and I said, why is that cool? And they said, oh, no, but see, Syracuse has like like horrible snowy winters and everything. And, and these girls are supposed to like stagger home at 4 a.m. on their stiletto heels in their miniskirts with their mascara smeared all over their faces. And most of these guys are just, they just pass out or snoring or whatever. They won't even see them home. They, so if a guy at least says, I'll loan you my sweatpants, then she doesn't have to be coming out in the morning or even that night in her miniskirt up to her crotch and doing that when they still call it this, the walk of shame. They call it that. And obviously nobody saw, saw you home. He did. Nobody gave a shit. Right. And made sure you were safe at least. Right. So sometimes these girls, you know, even the smallest token of like, he loaned me his sweatpants or he gave me his sweatshirt, so I thought he liked me, and then I got my hopes up and blah, blah. And then the next day on campus, he acted like he didn't remember, didn't even know me. And this really hurts them. It's an emotional alarm. These little things like, oh, I thought he would text me, and then he didn't. And then the ne very next night, I saw him hooking up with this other girl, and she's a real skank and blah, blah, blah. And they try not to have these feelings, but they do. They do. So by, by their junior and senior years, a lot of these girls – you know, regardless of how permissive they've been, or actually because they've been so permissive, they start gravitating toward more more control. They're not saying I want marriage right away or anything, but they they don't want to just be hooking up with random guys every night. They just don't want to do it, and so they begin to have because they they've had enough of these emotional alarms, these these negative emotional kind of spikes. For instance, this question: like every time I have sex with a guy a different guy, I wonder if sex was all he was after. All right. So guys, first of all, they didn't agree with that very strongly. And 
their number of hookups was not correlated with their answer to that question. But for women, the more hookups they had, the more they said yes. Every time I have sex, I wonder if sex was all he was after. It doesn't decrease with sexual experience for women. It increases because they were doing it more. They always wonder. And so the more guys they screw, the more they wonder. They never just become inured like, oh, who cares? He's a, he's a penis. He had a great penis, you know? I mean, guys are going like, oh, man, she had a great set of boobs or whatever. It's like, hey, he got his rocks off. So their agreement with that question, that statement, increased the more experience they have. The question about, oh, after sex, even if I didn't want to get involved, I feel vulnerable and wonder if he cares at all. Women's agreement with that statement was much higher than men's. And it didn't increase, but it was super high anyway, the agreement. And it did not decrease. So the women that have had one hookup compared to the women who have had 50 hookups, they're agreeing that having sex with a guy, even when they don't want to get involved, leaves them feeling vulnerable and wondering whether he cares at all. Did you follow that? Yeah, it sounds like uh, women, even if they are sexually promiscuous, and I'm, I'm guess you're going to say that guys, as you were saying a bit earlier, really, uh, that guys sleep with many women, they don't feel a lot. They don't really feel like concerned about it. Um, they're not going to worry about the girl the next day or if she's interested in a relationship or so on. But, but even a girl who has had, a, is having a lot of casual sex and she's going to like more one of the open girls who is having a lot of casual sex, she can still get hurt when the expectations, it sounds like it's, it's about expectations. The expectation isn't met. She's got to work on it to not care about him to not care whether he texts her the next day. And so I just had this student interviewing uh, 10 different sorority girls and whom she knew through the network and everything. And, and some of them are just saying, and they're angry and they're using the F word a lot. And they say, Oh, you know, yeah, I didn't really care, but then blah, blah, blah. And I thought at least he would text me and everything that bastard, you know, he didn't even text. And, and, and then they say like, you know, I try not to care. And a lot of times I don't, especially if I get really hammered, right? But they're working on it. They're working on not caring. You ask about the guys. The women never get over that feeling like a bit vulnerable afterwards and, and whatever. With the guys, their answer to that question, the more hookups they had, the less they answered yes to that question. Of course they don't, you know, or they can be doing it. They wouldn't be doing it. One of the interesting things that you also mentioned was that some guys are they don't want to upset the girl, right? So we're talking about the girl getting upset about the situation. And it sounds like it's partly up to the guy because he's setting some of the expectations. So you're saying like she hopes that the guy doesn't uh, lend her some pants to go home because that would be a nice thing to do. And then like she'd get her hopes up to get a text in the morning or whatever. But so is part of it like, could, could guys get around that? Like a good idea for them, like if they're only interested in casual sex to be very, very direct about it. And then the women are going to feel less affected by that. Does that make sense with your research or my? Actually, the, some of the guys, I talked to guys, the two guys that were in one of the top, it's debatable whether it's one or two, right? It, it's one of the top fraternities. And I said, so do you think that a lot of these girls, yeah, they don't want to necessarily go steady or anything, but but they want you to like text them or loan them, them your sweatshirt or, you know. And they just looked at me kind of, you know, like they, they were like professional poker players or something. And they just said, oh, we know that. Yeah. And that's why we, you have to avoid anything like that. And I said, really, why? 
And and they said, well, because they'll use that as an excuse to to see you again. Like, oh, well, I've got to, you know, come over and bring your shirt back or like they own a piece of you then. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to have no strings and and loaning a girl anything or seeing her home or whatever is a string. And they're right in a way, see, because it does encourage the woman to get into some kind of expectation. And they don't want any expectations. They just want to hook up with a nut. If they happen to see her and they've got nothing better to do, then they'll hook up with her again. But they don't want the, the female to think that it's anything except ejaculation in an orifice. And women, they can enjoy sex without going steady and all that. But they don't like to just be a sperm bank. They don't. And it takes them, some of them a while to figure that out. It seems like a little bit complicated because like there's this part of them that seems to say like i don't want him to say anything nice i don't want him to like walk me home or anything like that because then i'll start to think that there's something in it but they do that that's the point they do want that to happen but then they know that it's not going to happen right these guys any guy they're interested in has enough status so he's not he's going to be like the guys i described he's going to be like i'm not going to i'm not going to give you anything of me right so it seems like, I, I know what you're saying. It's like, they do want that. They want some kind of recognition of themselves as people and having feeling. Women like men who are considerate toward them and are protective. And you can't be a wimp, but if you're strong, but then nurturant toward the female, that's the winning combination, right? And these guys, they act all strong and they're charming and everything. And then as soon as they've, they've consummated their lust, they, most of them, I say, do you ever show these these get these women home safely. It's not safe walking across campus at night. You know, we've got all these little lamppost things where you can do this rape alert thing or something, right? But I mean, that's the point. Why are they there? And a lot of these guys like, ah, fucker, you know, I mean, just, hey man, I was hung over. And I mean, they, they don't do shit. They, I, I asked these girls, do these guys even buy you a beer? They started laughing. They said, oh, God, these days, if a guy buys you a beer, it's, it's like a marriage proposal. <laughs> it's like, I, and I'm thinking, like, I keep my values out of this, right? Or I, nobody would ever tell me anything. But, but I'm thinking, good Lord, what are you girls getting out of this except sperm donations? I mean, these guys, these guys give you sperm, right? I mean, maybe they chat you up for a few minutes and everything, but they don't even buy you a beer. And they brag about that. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So, so looking from the guy's perspective, something I've noticed over time is a, a lot of the guys uh, that we've coached, they're like, they're, they're very concerned about upsetting the girls, right? So say they're adult dating multiple women. There's a lot of guys that don't feel comfortable with upsetting the girls, although that that's what they want. And so they're, they're looking for ways to, to get around that and, you know, manage the system, manage the situation better so that they don't upset the girls. Is there anything in your research which connected with that? And where do you think that comes from? Because it seems to like not fit the evolutionary theory or the examples that we've been talking about where, you know, guys don't care. And I'm not saying that our caveman ancestors were all touchy-feely and warm and fuzzy or anything. But, but you know, women, women are attracted to men who, who will be protective toward them, right? And a man being domineering or dominating and guarding his mates that would be adaptive, certainly, but also being protective and 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 making sure they survive and and all that. I mean, that would that would be adaptive as well. So trying to to at times be nurtured and protective is 
is not necessarily against the man's interest, and it fosters loyalty, hopefully. But of course, then the guy wants some on the side. I mean, that's the typical picture. So actually, in my book, I have several guys who are functional polygynists, and, and one of them was just out front about it. He had a couple of girlfriends, and he was always open to new possibilities. And the two girlfriends knew about it, knew about each other. And and one time he was with one and the other burst in and made a big scene and got hysterical and all that. And, and he just, you know, he's had all this psychotherapy. And so he just, oh, I, I can see you're upset. And he did all this therapy speak and like, and he did get ruffled by it. Kind of, and he just, well, if you, if you feel that way, you want to cut it off. I mean, that'll make me really sad. But by, like, he's not bending. He's, he's wants to be polygamous and and by God, he's going to do it, right? And he had enough status, he could do it. So she she made all these noises and threats and blah, blah, blah. And she did go out with another guy just to make him jealous and all that. And he says, well, you've got to do what you've got to do. I mean, the guy had all that confidence. And pretty soon she's back in the fold, like it didn't work, right? So I don't want to counsel guys on how to get away with, with, with polygyny. But in my book, there's some examples. This other guy... He never discussed any of this. It's like he would go out with a woman and then she would get tired of no commitment and no no talk of any kind of getting more serious or whatever. And then she just cut it off. Right. So they had different strategies, but they were both functionally polygamous. When you talked about like your clinic and all that and guys getting confidence, like the senior partner in a major law firm in New York City, and, and they had negotiated a contract for me, but he was interested in the book. Right. He didn't do the grunt work of the contract but he calls me up because he says like yeah you got some wild stuff in here like these interviews with football players and everything and so we talked and he said i think that the thing that that women are really attracted to is confidence you know blah 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 and i said yeah but phil you don't have confidence or you've got to fake it and they'll see through that if you don't have the goodies if you have true confidence that means you do you're good at what you do, you know it, what other people recognize it, whatever. It's like they pick up on that. And so if guys, my advice to guys, if if they're striking out, they need to get in an environment where they have relatively high status. And that means that that's right. Maybe the that arena where they're relatively high status compared to any male competitors, maybe that arena doesn't have the best looking women, right? Because they're the best looking women are where the guys with the highest status are. But I'm just saying, well, it's better than just going after women that are going to dump on you, right? It's better to realize you have X kind of status. You can improve by dressing nicely, working on your interpersonal skills, whatever. But some of it is just that, just like a woman's physical attractiveness is so decisive. For a man, it's like I gave a seminar one time in, in Manhattan and and this guy comes up afterwards. He said, God, it's so true. It's like he says, I met this woman. She says, oh, I like you and everything. But, but you know, you've got to make at least over 150000 you know, for us to live in a decent place. And if we got married, send our kids to safe schools, et cetera, at least 150, if not 200. And you don't. And maybe she said it nicely, but that's what she said to him. And, he, and, and I just said, what can I tell you? Kind of like, you're going to have to, if you don't have that kind of money, then they're going to find it out, right? Yeah. Do you have a view on, on say we continue in the current trajectory, trajectory where basically uh, women are getting more and more independence, right? There's more women at college now than there are there are men. If we carry on on this trajectory, do you see it having a, an impact on, on things? Because less, less women are getting married as early. 
do you think basically the the way love and commitment works is is going to change over time is it changing now or do you kind of see it like fixed based on evolutionary biology programming actually i review this uh, summarize this uh this uh singapore campaign in the 80s where the professional classes were not reproducing at a sufficient rate to maintain like you know it's got to be for every baby each woman has to have two kids because two people are involved in producing it right so so each woman should have two kids or they won't maintain their numbers in the population but of course the lower classes are, are breeding like rabbits right so the government said my god we've got to encourage these women these all these professional women with high status, they're not getting married or they're they're not having kids or they're they're having too few kids, blah, blah, blah. So we're gonna encourage this and this. We're gonna encourage these these women to 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 date down and date guys that, yeah, are are successful, but they're working class or whatever. And they're not, they don't have the same education and social status and everything as these women, but they can make great husbands. In fact, they'd be more loyal because they perhaps because because they they have fewer opportunities. Anyway, they had loudspeaker. They Singapore is kind of very much like that, you know, public announcements on these these speakers at that intersections and stuff. And they movie theaters, like everywhere, they were having these public announcements. It's huge campaign, right? In schools, whatever, saying how elitist it was and unacceptable, you know, and unpatriotic to refuse to marry down, blah, blah, blah. All right, this lasted for a year or so, whatever. Guess how much effect that had? How much? <laughs> Zero. It just pissed the women off. It's kind of like, oh, you think he's so great? You marry him. <laughs> it's a gut reaction. Their reaction to it is like a man's reaction to a woman that he finds is physically repugnant, you know, this un- unattractive. It's like, I don't, she's a nice person. I love to talk to her, but I do not want to have sex with her, right? It's the same kind of thing that women just, this guy's just, ugh, you know, I see him do something that's just so classless or whatever, you know, just that he's just not in her league at all. And, and it's just a turnoff. So, so it had zip effect, except that it alienated a lot of women. And that's, that's the way I feel about it. And that's what I saw happening with the, like these medical students is like either these women would marry down or they would just have babies without, out of the context of marriage or whatever, because they're, they're not going to get what they want. Hmm. They're not gonna. They're they're not gonna find what they want. Looking at that, Dominic, it seems like there's basically less men at the top, and there's more women. So the guys who have higher status are gonna have a bigger pool of women to choose from. There's no doubt about it. It's like before the women's movement, financial independence, uh, effective contraception, etc. Everybody, just about everybody, got married, right? And most people stayed married. And there were some mar- extramarital hang- hanky panky, but not much, right? Once you say women don't have to have a man economically, it just opens up and she can contracept and she's not considered a whore if she has sex out of wedlock. It just opens up this huge sexual competitive marketplace. And you're right. What it does, it opens up the possibility of intense polygyny. So like with elephant seals, only the top 10% of the males, the most dominant, vicious, grossly humongous males get to breed and the rest of them get the elephant seal version of playboy or play seal that's what's beginning to happen here is like these fraternity guys are having so much more sex than the average guy these women are all competing for the same guys say and that happens with a guy with well like jfk 
JFK is a good example. All these women knew that he was a big player, and that just made him even more of a challenge. It, he got his brains blown out in his early 40s, and he's reputed to have had between three and 4,000 different sex partners. Frank Sinatra about the same. And a lot of that was before the pill was out. So what I'm saying is polygyny has actually increased it. It's been democratized so that even these fraternity boys can just have sex with hundreds of women. And they are. And that means that the regular guy who's just living in the dorm, right, who's considered a nerd, he gets bupkis, right? He gets nothing. Eventually, he may be able to marry, but but I'm just saying, like, a lot of these women don't have to get married. You, this, is, this is the point I think you're after. The women don't have to get married these days, so they're even more choosy. And that means the higher status guys could be even more polygynous. So this idea of, like, women's lib is going to diminish all of this, and I'd say, well, inadvertently, of course, it's increased the degree of polygyny because women have the freedom to be choosier. And what do they choose? They choose higher status men. So it's kind of ironic. Great, great. Thank you for that. Winding down uh, a little bit here, um, just some quick fire questions for you. What are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about you and your work? Well, I do have a website. And uh, if they Google John Marshall Townsend, Syracuse, probably that would be enough. But if you put Syracuse University after it, then they'll come up with my website. And on that, I have my email address. And I, I for this kind of stuff, I use my AOL address, which I'm using with you. And, uh, and also, I've got links to some of my publications. So that's a way of getting started. And there's that one I did for that uh, Australian Journal for counselors and psychotherapists, that's an easy read, right? So if it's someone who goes, oh, I don't want to read all these statistical things and all that, that one is very readable. And, and the, my Oxford book, we tried to make it as readable as possible, you know, even though it's an Oxford book, it's, it's pretty readable. I mean, some of my students, you know, their roommates read all the juicy uh, interview excerpts. So yes, we'll put, we'll put all of those in the, in the show notes. Are there offers? I want to, put a plug in for my friend uh, who's a, a radio uh, talk show hostess and her name is Amy Alcon, A-L-K-O-N. And she's the advice goddess. So if someone just Googles the advice goddess, they ought to come up with Amy's you know, website and everything. And she's very funny. She's kind of like a something between Ann Landers and, and Bette Midler. Uh, <laughs> she's really got a great sense of humor yeah. and she's very politically incorrect in terms of like me. I mean, she loves my work and I, I love hers. And she's got a book out now. And it's called Manners for People Who Like to Say Fuck. <laughs> so, and, and she talks about some of these issues, right? She doesn't really just talk about manners, right? So that's a good read, right? And she welcomes, I mean, our talk show, she has hosts on and then she has call-ins and everything. That's a good source for people. Great, thanks so much for that. What would be your top three recommendations to guys starting out from scratch? without prior knowledge to improve their dating life as fast as possible. Based on what you've learned, there, would you have any recommendations? Yeah, well, it sounds like you guys are doing some some good basic stuff there in your clinic. I mean, I haven't really seen what you do, but I think, and, and, and Kinsey said this, of course, that the ability to deal with these, these gender differences depends upon our knowledge, right? And our acceptance that they're not absolute, but these tendencies are are strong enough to create problems between the sexes. So guys, for instance, 
it could be kind of cute if a guy already has high status and he's dressed kind of shabbily because then it becomes like a shabby chic. It was Brad Pitt, but he was just in these old torn jeans and, you know, but most of the time women, they are very attuned to how, how men are dressed. And, oh, that's another thing that a lot of people forget. There isn't just one, in, in modern nations, there's not just one status hierarchy. So one way to dress for success, no. If you're going to hang out with artists and, you know, artsy fartsy types, you don't wear Brooks Brothers suits and church shoes and stuff. I mean, you have to know your hierarchy. Are you going out with women who are, you know, dating stockbrokers? Then you better know how to dress like that, right? Or if, if the woman is, is, she thinks that you're a rock musician, well, then you got the long hair and everything. There are different costumes. But the point is you have to know what hierarchy she identifies with. Maybe she'll, she moves between some, but the point is this idea of like, oh, I don't care. I'm just into my old T-shirt or something like that. That can be cool if you already have high status within a hierarchy. But otherwise, women notice guys who are dressed well. They do. But dressing well, of course, depends upon what social arena you're in. So that's one little tip. <laughs> great, great. Thank you very much for that. Well, John, thank you so much for making uh, your time available today. Hey, man, it's been cool. It's been fun. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.